0: Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And tonight we're going to be talking about what else? uh, Coronavirus and media and other things going on in the media because life has become so complicated for us since the coronavirus. Joining us again uh, is a former guest we have from uh, Cuyahoga Community College, uh, Professor John Kersey. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nick. As as always good, last time we had you on, I don't think we had the coronavirus. I think we were just we talking about... No, we were, we were very innocent young people uh, a couple months ago, talking about things like the media, fake news, hoaxes, and uh, who do we believe? Uh, and uh, for those of you who didn't hear our last show with John, John's an expert in media. He teaches the subject over at Cuyahoga Community College, and he's done a lot of continuous research into following up on these issues such as false news, fake news, uh, and, and other types of problems that make a problem for us in trying to understand what in the world can we believe in. So, uh, So John, again, welcome to the program. And uh, I'm assuming that your research has continued since our last talk. And how has coronavirus been affecting us here?
1: It certainly has, Nick. And I think the best way to do it is, um, I'll I'll paraphrase uh, the former head of the Soviet Union's KGB or their secret police. Uh, He made a statement that disinformation works like cocaine. If you sniff it once or twice, it might not change your life. But if you use it every day, it's going to make you into an addict. And sadly, what's happened is the coronavirus has kind of contributed to like a one, two, three punch that have made Americans more susceptible than ever, I think, to disinformation. And that one, two, three punch that I'm talking about, of course, begins with the extended government mandated lockdown and quarantine. And with that happening, people being beings of general nature, they've spent more time on social media. And that means that they've been more susceptible to disinformation. And especially with respect to the coronavirus, there's been different waves or chasms of disinformation out there. And then the third thing that's happened, which, of course, we're all kind of in the midst of right now or the throes of, is um, the the murder of an African-American, George Floyd, uh, which all of the U.S. has seen on a video. And all three of those factors kind of synergistically have created kind of a perfect storm or disinformation and malinformation going on in our country, and it's been a it's been a wild ride, I think, for the last three and a half months for many of us.
0: And we talked about this again innocently months ago, talking about how we do have just uh, this large number of news sources and. Uh, people putting out news and, and they can come across in all different parts of the spectrum from far left to far right and everything in between. But something you just mentioned is that since the the quarantine and the uh, preoccupation we have with protecting ourselves from COVID-19, that people have been going more on the uh, internet uh, to look at social media, but you use the term, we're more susceptible. now. As soon as you said that, what what came to my mind is that I know a lot of people, a lot of intelligent people who are rejecting, outright objecting and rejecting the authoritative information we're getting from like the CDC, from the government, and they're they're giving a lot of credence to these outrageous uh, conspiracy theories. And... Uh, what's the role of social media and the susceptibility of us to get so many people seriously believing in this stuff?
1: Great question, Nick. And the answer kind of lies in some statistics. So if you don't mind, let me do the stats no. first and then we'll get back to usage. Uh, That's a good basis look, for
0: authority. <laughs> yeah, if you look anyway. at
1: reports. Uh, For example, TechCrunch is reporting that WhatsApp and Instagram, again, younger people use those, have seen a 40% increase in usage since the coronavirus. Facebook has seen a 37% uptick in usage. Twitter has reported a 25% greater amount of daily users in the early period of coronavirus. And this is, of course, according to different tech sources. So what's happening, and I've seen stats that talk about as much as 80 minutes, is Americans, on average, are spending that much more time every day on social media, perhaps because they're unemployed, perhaps because they're working from home and they don't have that commute time to take into account. There could be many reasons behind it. But as they spend more time on social media, that makes them more susceptible. It's like walking around in a big crowd without a mask on. It makes you more susceptible to what's going on. And uh, uh, fortunately, to its benefit, I think, the World Health Organization at the end of February basically issued a, an alert calling it an infodemic. And what they were referring to is the proliferation of many strands of false information or false facts about the coronavirus that are out there on the internet. And again, we collectively as an audience can think back and we can see early examples of that. One of them was, uh, breathe. And if you can breathe deep and holding your breath for 10 seconds, it means you don't have coronavirus. Well, that's completely fallacious, but that was one of the things that was going around back then in the early phases of this with social media. Uh, one of the big strands of disinformation that's going on with respect to the coronavirus is from what I call the anti-vaxxer group. These are the ones that think that vaccinations are horrible, vaccinations are linked to uh, autism and, and other terrible things. And for a variety of reasons, the anti vectors have been kind of in overdrive uh, attacking uh, public health officials. Uh, that was part of the group that was attacking Dr. Amy Acton in Ohio and putting out a lot of basic false and disinformation with respect to this virus. And just as you said, that leaves a lot of the public in a state of confusion, not knowing exactly what to believe, and that's not a good situation. And what happens is people begin to believe things that they haven't checked, that they don't take the time to check themselves for facts. And there are fact-checking networks in the state of Ohio and the federal government through the CDC and the Ohio Department of Health and other people are putting out a lot of good factual information, but for some reason people are eschewing that and instead kind of reverting back to whatever so-and-so's friend might be telling them. And and that's part of the problem.
0: Do do we have a profile of the personalities that fall into and are susceptible to the anti-vaxxer group type mentality? I just don't find crazy people. I mean, these are people who otherwise are intelligent. Another, no,
1: another great question, Nick. In general, uh, the older a person is, the more susceptible they are to uh, fake information. Uh, I've seen reports that say that as much as 70% of the population over the age of 65 Will spread fake news stories unknowingly. And this again became uh, accentuated during the coronavirus. Let's take a 70 or 75 year old sees a story on social media that is completely fallacious, but they hit share because they want to make sure that their children are protecting their grandchildren. You know, that's a very commonality, co- common occurrence that's happened uh, during this infodemic around the coronavirus.
0: Well, when I, you say infodemic, uh, it brings another thought to mind is that with Everyone, first off, we start with a layer of fright and and scare, uh, being scared because of this whole virus and with good cause. It's lethal. The numbers are unprecedented in our modern times. Uh, yet, if people are spending 80 minutes on the average on social media, uh, one of the ways they do this is to probably go online, go to Google and go COVID-19. And whatever comes up, they start looking at. And they start looking at the subject lines, so they're they're drawn to this kind of thing. So any any individuals who want to spread the word of, of some type of disruptive uh, false story or false news, uh, they they know how to set up that subject line, and it gets picked up by everybody who has who has all this extra time. Um, Correct. What, and, what and do you tell choose. these people? Who yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, and, and to their credit, some of the social media platforms have taken down some face, inf- some phony information. But, you know, my advice is always, if you see a story, first source it. Look at the source of the information and ask yourself, is this an accurate place? Would I be willing to risk my life or my family's health based on this, the source? Check out the source, which is very easy to do, and see if it's a reputable source or not. If it comes to your health mm-hmm. or your family's health, it's well worth that effort. And as as part of this, Nick, I think I need to, to, to share this with our, our list, your listeners. Uh, and realize that there are certain elements of a population that in general have a, a less trusting attitude toward sources of authorities than others. Uh, I was on the phone today with a, a good friend of mine in journalism who's an African American, and he pointed out to me that African Americans in general are more distrustful of sources of authority than other segments of our population.
0: Well, uh, we're going to take a break here in a little bit, but uh, on that topic, what I've noticed is that people who are very distrustful of the uh, sources of authority, they're going to be asking questions like when you say, well, uh, to wear a mask is a good thing. And they're going to question more vigorously, well, who says so, and how do they know, and and why are they saying that, yet the same people will accept some very unusual conspiracy theory without question. There's sort of a disconnect there, believing this fantastic story versus the authoritative story. So is there a trend where we're losing faith in our our government uh, authorities?
1: There is, and what's really disturbing about it is we know from those uh, entities that practice disinformation campaigns, especially those emanating from Russia, that one of their major, major objectives is to nurture division or to try to create more of a of a disconnect between one part of our society and another part of our society. And during uh, the last four weeks, we've certainly seen that.
0: Let's take a short break. We're going to come back. Uh, talking to John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College on media and we're going to talk about the Russian influence and we're going to answer the question as to why is Russia so interested anyway uh, we're going to take a short break you're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK The Advocate we'll be right back after these words Welcome back, Cleveland Nick Phillips. Back with you with another segment of the Advocate. Tonight we're talking about uh, the media and what to believe and when to believe it and and how do we have it presented. And with us tonight is a returning guest, John Kersey from Cuyahoga Community College, a professor in media at uh, Cuyahoga Community College. And John, again, as always, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: we were talking about disinformation and it's. Spewing forth all over the place, and uh, all of us normal people, unless we're going to take time off from work and dedicate ourselves to fact-checking, we don't know what to believe. But what we do know, I think you have an opinion that the Russians are are very interested in disinformation and providing that to this country. Uh, Why is Russia doing that to this country? What's what's the motivation?
1: Well, Nick, first, they're doing it in many other countries besides the United States. They have different goals depending on... the I feel much better. (laughs) (laughs) In Eastern Eastern Europe, which used to be under the domination of the former Soviet Union, their, their campaigns are completely different. We do know from research that was done at the University of Washington that one of the big things that Russia tried to do in the last campaign cycle was to nurture division to try to Drive a further wedge between again i'm going to use some 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 terms here liberal and conservative or left and and and, and right or african americans and non african Americans uh, if you go to my website and it's di the letters di dot com the most recent post you can see uh, that a whole research paper that came out of the University of washington and you can see some very intense research that they did back in two thousand sixteen on the Black Lives Matter protests and what percentage of the most frequent social media people were actually Russians. And they were not operating in the United States. They were operating in St. Petersburg, Russia. And you can actually see research indicating that what they have done. What's happened since then, and I think that it's kind of important that our our listeners know this, is follow-up information. Something that came out of Stanford University, its Internet Observatory, indicated that the Russians, knowing that they got caught, and they did get caught, they got, got, got caught by our FBI and, and profiled in the Mueller report. They basically have gone to outsourcing this information, where they try to get nationals in the countries in which they're doing, uh, they want to do the division to do the actual posting for them. So again, on my website, you will see this information that came out of the Stanford um, Internet Observatory showing how they're hiring people in countries in Africa to run campaigns in Africa. That are aimed to fulfill different Russian objectives with there, I believe it's extremely reasonable to presume that they have continued to do that in the United States. That they have hired uh, individuals mm-hmm. in our country or individuals mm-hmm. that have been in our country for long times and have long established social media accounts, and these people are being paid uh, either directly by Russia or indirectly through a third party. To continue to be divisive and to continue to put on information that is not true and information that basically, uh, fans the flames of dissension in our country.
0: You know, uh, you mentioned in your blog and, and that, uh, you talk about these, this disinformation coming from, uh, the Russians and they come across both uh, advocating uh, far leftist ideas and far right-wing ideas. And it, it certainly helps uh cause the, the division be, between the left and right in this country to become more rapid. Uh, how do they get away with that? And is it all coming from Russians? Are they also arguing right and left? And You did a study on Black Lives Matter. How did it come across there?
1: Right. Well, I want to make sure, I didn't do the study on my blog, I reported on studies that I've read and seen. And I think if if, if it's okay, I'll, I'll kind of short-circuit a little bit of this and get sure. to like our, our current situation with all the unrest in our country. Uh, the Wall Street Journal in early June reported that there were videos that showed police violence, police violence against African Americans, supposedly police violence against African Americans in the United States. But the reporter for the Wall Street Journal was able to actually trace them back and prove that they were coming from social media accounts that were in the countries of Pakistan and Botswana. And these supposedly were like, oh, live video we shot. And they were viewed 20 million times, 20 million times in the United States before Facebook realized, oh, these are phony, they're not United States accounts, they're inauthentic, and removed them from their service. But that means that 20 million people in the United States saw these videos and reacted to these videos. So they had a huge impact in terms of what the public is thinking with respect to police violence, racial inequality, and so on.
0: What's the objective of a country like Russia to cause social unrest and to weaken the strength of of the country uh, and, and the population to not wanting to believe in what they're hearing from their own government. What, what is their objective, do you think?
1: I think you just said it. Distrust. The more they can sow seeds of distrust and make Americans less trustful of their government, less trustful of their police, less trustful of each other, less, tr- less, tr- less trustful of our neighbors, our local governments, that the, the more they weaken us as a nation, the, the more they stand to benefit from that. And again, this has been tools that have been in the Russian disinformation playbook, Nick, for decades. Uh, I will kind of tell an old story. About 35 years ago, I was working in the United States Congress when Chernobyl happened. The nuclear power plant meltdown in the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Russians immediately said, oh, it's no big deal. We have it under control. Well, I was invited to a briefing that um, my senator's uh, senior staffer on national security had attended. And they were showing satellite pictures, and they said, boy, this is a heck of a lot worse than what the Russians are saying. And sure enough, it was the largest nuclear disaster in the world's history. But the Soviet Union was disinforming people. They weren't, they weren't admitting to that. And those types of practices happen even to this day, and they happen uh, at various levels of both you know, Russia and all over the world for, for various uh, bad purposes. In fact, there's a, there's, a group called the, there's a group called the Analytic Exchange Program, which is run from the Department of Homeland Security, and they actually call these people uh, evil actors uh, w- when they identify them.
0: Well, talking about evil actors, we're talking about the stories now uh, with the Russian bounty to the Taliban for American service members' lives. Uh, how much of that is disinformation? How much is accurate? And where are we on that? That's pretty current.
1: That's a great question. Again, I've not been researching that one or looking into it, but there are certain reporters that I put a lot of trust and confidence in. One works for CBS. Her name is Katherine Herrich, and she's a national security reporter. She worked for a while for Fox, and she's worked for other outlets as well. Uh, her most recent assessment of that is that this information is uncorroborated. So that just means it's kind of like raw intelligence that somebody is filtering through, just like there was raw intelligence about three and a half years ago about a certain candidate for president hiring prostitutes to pee on a bed in a hotel in Moscow. Basically, that, that's maybe a half step above rumors. And what Heritage also reported, which I think is extremely significant, is that the elements of the National Security Agency thought that this was so insignificant that they did not include it in reports that went to the eyes of the president and the vice president. So we're basically talking about, again, some form of disinformation that could have been fomented by the Russians themselves, could have been coming from a source in Iran or China, or sadly, and I hate to say this, but I think it's quite true, could have been from somebody within the National Security Agency himself who has an axe to grind and therefore sees a little report and decides to make it public when it shouldn't be made public.
0: So, uh, with regard to Russian involvement, could this be the uh, modus operandi of of the Russian intelligence to actually plant a story that sounds bad for Russia, but to make the United States look worse by not reporting it? Is this part of their overall game plan as well?
1: That is in their playbook. Because, again, if if the long-term overwhelming strategy is to divide the United States, so, you get some mm-hmm. big entity such as the New York Times to report on something which creates this division and this dissension in our own country, then, by the, the strategy objectives they set up, that's a successful activity. And remember, for them, success is yeah. defined as how the media reports about something. When Dan Rather in the CBS News in 1987 reported that the AIDS virus pur- purportedly came from an army research lab, That was considered a great success in the Soviet Union in the ranks of the KGB because they got the Western news media to accept the disinformation story that they had planted.
0: Well, everything sounds authoritative when we get it through our our news sources. Uh, If we're getting it on the Internet, like everyone loves YouTube and they start seeing videos, they're not going to take the time to fact check. But if they're watching the, the news outlets, they're watching MSNBC, they're watching NBC, CBS, ABC, uh, Fox. Uh, that is the source, probably the most authoritative source, I guess, most vetted news that we can hope for at this point. But, uh, John, we'll have to have you on again because life continues to get complicated and where we look, or our news that we're going to base our safety and our futures on is so vitally important to us. So, John, thank you for uh, giving us some insight tonight.
1: Nick, thank you. And, again, best Fourth of July holiday to uh, all the listeners.
0: Yes, let's celebrate uh, this whole weekend. So, John, thank you so very much. And uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, Welcome to our continuing coverage of COVID-19 issues. And uh, in the next two segments, we're going to talk about something that we all have to do all the time, and that's eat. And it's been months now, but um, when you want to go and eat at a restaurant, because not cooking everything at home, we, we do want to go out and be safe. And we're going to talk to a restaurant owner who's been in the restaurant business for many years, telling us about what is it like to operate a restaurant in this day and age, and how it's going. Uh, with us tonight, we have Bruce Ferris of Ferris Steakhouse. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're welcome, Nick. It's good to have, uh, good to be on the show. Thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, it's good, good to have you. Uh, Ferris Steakhouse—it's been a fixture here in the Cleveland area for a lot of years, over 70 years. How many years, actually, has Ferris Steakhouse been around?
2: This year, actually, in April, was our 80th year. We sold our 80th uh, you know anniversary, uh, third-generation Ferris. We opened in, in 1940 uh, in, in Cleveland area, and I moved it out to Rocky River, uh, Worcester and Hilliard, uh, in 2012. So we've been out there eight years, and, again, uh, we just celebrated our 80th, uh, 80th anniversary. Uh, I think we're the family. The oldest family owned and operated steakhouse, uh, you know, in the uh, Greater Cleveland area in Northeast Ohio.
0: Well, let's see. Uh, it's about 80 years old, and you started there when you were about 20. So it puts you at about 100 years old, or
2: is exactly, something different.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and you now you grew up um, with the family business. I, I'm assuming. Had have you ever seen anything like what we're seeing now with this pandemic?
2: No, it's 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 really something you see. Like, and you know, we, we a lot of people talk about it, and we get to go with a lot of restaurant tours and have a bite to eat and just chat about it. We always say it's kind of like a sci-fi movie, but you know, it is what it is, and we just have to deal with it. And you know, we, um, you know, we 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 have to, you know, switch gears sometimes. You know, when they shut down for two months, you know, a lot of the restaurants couldn't couldn't do anything. We we switch gears and. Ramped up and went to these carry-out uh, family family packs. We still sold the steaks. We still still sold chops and what have you. But the family dinners for four people just uh, we gave them a great deal, and uh, we've had a lot a lot of support. And uh, over the two months, we uh, we did very well with it, and it kept us uh, it kept us going. And and after we opened, um, you know, people again they, they still support us, and we've been doing very well since. A lot of restaurants
0: and places here. Yeah. Well, well, you're a family-owned restaurant and and to me at least in my opinion, family-owned restaurants have such a tremendous amount of charm with them. Uh they're they're not franchises. They're they're not uh, supported by a national chain of of their own restaurants and so on right uh being a a family-owned restaurant uh, how did this go for you to keep supplied with produce and meats and foods did the covid problem affect your supply chain
2: you know n- not at all there was a lot of talk out there that the meat situation was going to be a little difficult because they couldn't get workers in but we didn't we didn't feel a thing we didn't suffer a thing we've had the same supplier for over 40 years, and uh, he kept us abreast of what was going on. He said, as of right now, uh, we'll, you, you'll be taken care of. You, there w- you won't have any interruptions. We were getting produce and products. You know, purveyors that were supply us three or four times a week because I didn't know how this was going at the very beginning. But it, it ramped up. It picked up very well, and we we weathered the storm. And, and we're doing we're doing very well now. So it wasn't. The, a problem uh, so, the supplies are coming in. How about
0: when you transition to shutting down the restaurant and just keeping it open for carryout? How, how did that work? What, what kind of people were coming back and taking advantage of it? Was there much anxiety on the part of people coming out, or either with your staff or your cooks or the customers?
2: No, we, we did, of course. We had to lay a number of, of, of uh, staff members off that have been with me a while, but they understood it. Um, And I kept two people on, really a cook and a a manager, just to uh, take care of the carryout. And we all helped out. But, uh, no, the people, we we said, listen, give us your credit card number. We'll we'll curbside. We took all the precautions. We wore our masks. We wore gloves. We wiped everything down with, you know, the proper, uh, you know, sanitation, uh, you know, procedures. And people were so thankful. I mean, they pay over the phone. We bring it out, put it in their trunk, put it in their back seat. And we would get customers three and four times a week. So we knew that was working. And uh, we had a lot of repeat business. And, uh, boy, those people supported us to no end. Uh,
0: they say people are in a high-risk area if they're over 60. Do you have many over 60 customers?
2: Well, we do. We A lot of our clientele is, you know, we, we've been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, we've got a, a follower. I've got people that come in for 40 or 50 years that follow us, you know, out to Rocky River. And, and you know, they send their kids in. Every once in a while, you'll see them driving in. But we, we take the precautions. We don't, you know, have to hand them anything. We put it in their back seat, put it in their trunk. We thank them. We talk to them over the phone. Uh, so, no, a, a lot of them, you know, uh, know the, what type of precautions we take. And we've always been a very meticulous operation as far as sanitation and, and supervision. And, you know, we have a lot of serve-safe uh, employees. They know what they're doing. So when this came about, we just continued to do what we were doing, stepped it up a notch, and we were fine. And people knew it, you know. Now, now, when you
0: reopen now for limited seating and people can come in and eat, and do you have a patio?
2: Yeah, we have a, a patio outside. That fills up immediately. People love the patio. Those tables are spaced out accordingly. Um, once the patio is usually filled, depends, you know, depending on the weather, of course, then the inside. And we've got the uh, tables separate, every other table. Uh, that, uh, you know, when uh, when people come in and people have, they, I got to tell you, not you don't hear one word about it. They know that they're far enough away. Uh, I, honestly, Nick, I bet you maybe 5% of the people that have been coming wear a mask. The rest are just, they're very comfortable, you know, with the way the, the restaurant's set up. Oh, I'm sorry, what percentage wear a mask? I bet you maybe not even 10%, you know, come in with, with masks on. Mm-hmm. And then they take them off right away to eat. So...
0: Well, yeah, I haven't figured out a way to eat with a mask on yet.
2: But <laughs> no, now, or drink.
0: when you opened when you opened up, and, and what was the date you opened up to actually allow people to come in and, and, and eat food in the restaurant?
2: Well, the first round was when they just opened patios, and that was almost a month ago. And then the week after, that was a Friday, uh, you know, in June, and then the week after uh, they opened the inside. And as soon as they announced that on a Tuesday that they were going to open patios on Friday, we must have had twenty, twenty-five calls for reservations, and and I couldn't see them all on the patio, so unfortunately I had to turn a few away. Um, but they came in the next few days and, and so on, and then when we opened the inside, uh, we just we did very well with that. So I think people were yeah. anxious to get.
0: I think so. I, I think there's a tremendous demand out there for getting back to normal or anything that resembles Absolutely. being back to normal. Absolutely. Now, when when you opened up, were there requirements you had to comply with with the state or the county board of health or if so, oh, yeah. how how is this how's it communicated to you?
2: Well, it's you know, there's a website you go on and, and they'll tell you all the guidelines that you have to uh, you know that you have to abide by and, and you know, we we've, we've complied with all of those. And basically it's really just wearing our staff where that we wear a mask we wipe down you know we have carry out or throwaway menus you know right now people aren't handling the plastic menus but everything we do with pens when they sign their checks we, we wipe them down with the uh, you know the bleach and, and, the, and the sanitizers and all that so everything is done uh, you know as an ongoing basis but you know we've always done that Nick we've always been very clean and very sanitized about our, our operation over the years. And people have commented on, on how, how how clean it is, but and and we separate them out where they're very comfortable where they're sitting. Um, they know how we handle things, and we we've nothing but positive, uh, you know, positive response. And it's been it's been a wonderful, uh, um, you know, response the way they they've been coming in and supporting us.
0: Are there any inspectors or any government agencies that inspect restaurants or
2: uh, no, come we back to make a, sure uh, things are? Wrong? No, we have a regular health inspector. They come in twice a year, and we've known, you know, them for a while. And they've come in, and we've really never had a citation or anything negative about it. Um, you know, it, 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 once in a while, they'll get a call maybe from somebody saying that something wasn't right, whatever. But honestly, no, they haven't come in and, and said anything to us about anything. Just our normal uh, twice a year, uh, you know, health inspector comes in and, and goes through, and you know we comply with with that, and everything's been been fine. Um, No complaints at all.
0: Good, good, good. We're we're talking to uh, Bruce Ferris. Uh, He's the owner of Ferris Steakhouse. And we're talking about COVID-19 and how it's affected the restaurant business, because I know we all want to get out there, get out to restaurants ourselves. So uh, we're talking to Bruce, and we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Bruce Ferris talking about restaurant dining during the COVID pandemic. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment, our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. And we're talking to Bruce Ferris, longtime restaurant owner here in Cleveland of Ferris Steakhouse. Uh, And uh, we're talking about the realities and the normalization of life with COVID-19. So Bruce Ferris, thank you again for joining us tonight. You're welcome. Uh, As we are talking in the last segment, uh, you you guys have weathered through the first phase of the, uh, of the virus and the pandemic by maintaining carryout, and you're opened up now with uh, limited seating and patio seating. And uh, as, as we go through that, you mentioned that uh, you, you basically get your information about how to be safe in this environment uh, from different websites and that kind of thing. In actual practice, uh, what, what do you do with your employees? Do you check their temperatures or anything when they come in, or how are we watching we out that, for the virus?
2: We do that daily. We do a uh, we have a, a you know we check their, their temperature every day and we chart it to make sure everybody's good and and there's no uh, you know fluctuation uh, as far as temperatures. And so far, we haven't had anyone that was sick or or uh, or anyone that out, out of my entire staff. Uh, including myself, I don't know anyone that has had uh, the virus, and neither has my staff personally known anyone that's had the virus. Um, but uh, you yeah, know, again, as we talked earlier. We're very cautious about how we handle things, and and uh, you know how we uh, you know how we you know sanitize as we go. And but we've always done that, even in the in the past before the virus. So it's just normal routine. We just stepped it up a notch. But no, I don't know anyone. No one, No one else has known anyone. And, again, we, we, you know, handle everything, and you know, like I say, with, with gloves and, and uh, you know, sanitation wipes and what have you. But uh, we don't know anybody that's had the virus, and mm-hmm. my staff, so, yeah, the precautions we take, yeah, the temperatures, and that's really all we can do right now, you know.
0: Well, well, well that's so good. Uh, and in the same way, I don't know anyone who's had it or has it uh, mm-hmm. and haven't heard of any stories of anybody we know. And right. the concern the public health people have is that we don't want everyone to let their guard down uh, because right. uh, if if we continue to go not knowing anybody who has, that means the system is working and we'll, we'll pass through this this point in sure. time where we're all so concerned about uh, about getting the virus. So I think we can't let our guard down, and, and what you're doing is, is fine. Um, and, and while we were on the break, we were talking about what the – Board of Health would do if someone happened to be infected and they were in your restaurant and then they were basically reported to the Board of Health as having an active case of coronavirus, that you would be contacted at that time. Uh, Would you then reach out to the Board of Health to figure out what what you do since you have uh, had somebody who has been in your restaurant with it?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely, right away. I would. And, this, uh, and by the uh, way, this
0: applies to every restaurant, not just yours.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, this is something you want to be very proactive about it and, and be safe for, you know, the people around you. So it's just, you know, it's a, a short term. It's not a short term, it's a long term. So, yeah, if somebody came in and they had the virus and they, they mentioned that, then definitely I would call the Board of Health and ask them immediately what to do and, and, and what steps we need to take and whatever steps they tell us to do, that's what we would do. This is for the safety of our staff, the safety of our clients, our customers, and, and, you know, future customers as well. So, yeah, whatever the Board of Health, you know, says what we need to do, we would do it for sure.
0: Well, well that's what I'm sort of looking at, and that is uh, I think all of us, you know, have this uh, this built-up uh, demand for for getting out. We're longing to be back the way things were, but we're not, and we know we can't. Logically, we know we, we have to play by special rules. But uh, those special rules, whatever we understand them to be, is still going to be uh, balanced with the risk we have to take. So when we know that we can go to a restaurant like yours or other restaurants that are open, uh, we can uh. we can talk to the owners and talk to people about what's their experience with COVID and not having any because there's been no contact is a good thing. Uh, yeah. How have the customers been behaving? Have they been... Uh, Wary about the virus, they've been. You mentioned earlier, very few of them wear masks. But you know, in a restaurant, especially say on a patio, you're you're yeah. not going to need a mask typically.
2: No, no. But you know, like the customers that come in, I think they've been kind of cooped up enough. So I think that uh, you know they're they're cautious, and they they look around to see you know what's going on and and how we're handling things. But you know, they've been they've been really really you know, grateful and thankful that we've opened and, you know, they know how we do things and, you know, we welcome them with open arms. These are customers that have supported us for 20, 30, 50 years. And, boy, they couldn't wait to get out and they couldn't wait for us to open, you know. So, it, 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 you know, they are they cautious? A lot of people are, but a lot of people, boy, they seems like they've just kind of loosened up a little bit lightened lined up on, on how everything's handled. But we still take the precautions. We don't put our guard down and we just kind of weather the storm. That's what we're doing.
0: Well, it's so appreciated. Uh, summer is here, and we want this thing so badly to go away, but we all have to do our parts. We don't want to be like California, Texas, or Florida, or right. Arizona, exactly. uh, and what's going on there. So, so far, as of this interview, we're doing okay. <laughs> so, go. well, very good. Very well, good. What, what's the next um, step? Uh, are, are we talking about, are we in phase two now, whatever that might be, or is there going to be a phase three, or... What's the well, I, next uh, event.
2: I think we're we're doing is really just moving right along. We're we're basically taking the, you know, the Board of Health all their guidelines and, and kind of running with with that and I think we've been been doing very well uh phase 2. Uh I think if they when they loosen up, I know they've allowed banquets for 300 or more. Um you know, it was social distancing there, but I think as time goes on it's going to be loosening up even more and more, you know. Uh, And I think people are ready for it, and I still think people are going to be very cautious about it, you know what I mean? So I don't know what else there is to do except what we're doing, and, and basically they're guiding us through this, you know?
0: Well, we have to keep watching what all all is going on, of course, and make sure that it's safe. Uh, do you have yep. just to give you a little plug now? What's going on? Uh, do you guys have a full menu, or is there anything that's in short supply, or you you're not allowed to serve, or any, any rules like that we should know about?
2: No, we we basically are serving the full menu. With a couple of things, a couple of items that you know we just we limited to, to take off. And this is stuff that you know, there's specialty items that you know certain people like, and. We have, and those will come back. We're going to re, actually redoing the entire menu uh, uh, probably by the end of uh, end of July. And we're going to go with the, you know, we had had a limited menu up to now. But not, you know, still with steaks and entrees are being served. But we're bringing more of like an Italian flair uh, into it. I brought a, another chef in uh, who's very Italian-influenced. And so we're going to create a whole new uh, menu with an Italian influence. But still all the steaks. Chops, seafood will all be the same. We're just adding uh, a number of uh, dishes to it, and we're real excited about it as well.
0: Well, that's exciting, uh, plus the fact that uh, you you get the wine. I mean, I just like sitting on a summer evening, uh, having a nice meal, not not being rushed, and having some wine oh, and sitting there and just sort of – we can do that there?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, the patio is nice. <laughs> Even indoors, we have the garage door that opens up into the bar area. So, yeah, if you want to sit in the dining room a little more elegant, uh, that's wonderful. You have the tavern side where the TVs are or the patio. It's really three, four different entities. You have the dining room, tavern, the bar, and then the patio. So whatever choice, whatever you feel like that night, we have it for you.
0: And, by the way, just to let the listeners know back uh, during the break, I confess that as we're talking about this I was picturing in my mind a ribeye steak cooked medium. I could <laughs> smell it. I could see it cut and taste Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And uh that's the place to get it. Tell us again, where are you? You're located in we're, uh,
2: we're in Rocky River at the intersection of Wooster and Hillary, two five eight nine Wooster Road. Uh again it's our eightieth year uh in, in business. And um we're we're just we're just happy to of course to be open and we're doing well. Um, it'll take probably a little bit more time, maybe a month or two, to get back to 100. percent But we're moving in the right direction, and we're real happy for the uh, with the, the support that uh, our customers over the years have provided, and and continue to uh, to thank them for that.
0: Well, it's interesting. I was thinking that uh, I'd like to say there's life after COVID, but we're not after it yet. We're, we're still right. in it. So. There is right. life during COVID, and uh, we just need sure. to know how to master it, to be safe, and to go in and out of places like restaurants safely with these new rules and um, enjoy the experience and continue to enjoy our good health. So we Definitely. should see how that works. Well, Bruce Ferris from Ferris Steakhouse in Rocky River, thank you so much for joining us. We should all get out there and enjoy a very normal tasting steak someday. That would be thank great. You, Nick. I can good taste it.
2: Good. Thanks You're welcome, night. Bruce. Enjoying.
0: You bet. Thank you so very much, Bruce Ferris of Ferris Steakhouse. And thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea. With nothing to do until morning. I don't